The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to Scorebox this Monday morning. We have an absolutely enormous week of data, of news ahead for you. Uh, and lots are already out today. So let's uh, bring you that with myself and Karen Cho. Here's uh, your headlines. HSBC announces a fresh $3 billion share buyback program after the bank posts a third quarter pre-tax profit of $7.7 billion. That's more than double last year, but actually still below market expectations. The S&P 500 last week closed in correction territory with all three U.S. major indices on pace for their third negative week in a row. Investors bracing for a week of rate decisions out of the Fed, the BOJ and the Bank of England. Israel expands its offensive in northern Gaza, raising parts of the city to the ground while thousands break into an aid warehouse. And Palestinian health officials say the death toll tops 8,000. The United Auto Workers Union agrees a pay deal with Stellantis, bringing an end to six weeks of strike action, while also approving a tentative deal with Ford, including a 30% rise in full-time workers' wages. Yeah, lovely to see you all this morning. Uh, HSBC has launched a new $3 billion share buyback program after reporting a third quarter profit that missed analyst expectations. It still rose to th- uh, pre-tax profit, though, of $7.7 billion. That's up from $3.2 billion a year earlier. The net interest margin rose 19 basis points on the year to 1.7%, but dipped two basis points on the quarter as customers moved to fixed-term deposits. The results come after, I think it's fair to say, a dismal week for UK lenders, with banks including Barclays, NatWest and Standard Chartered all seeing double-digit declines on the back of their numbers. Uh, Concerns over the health of the financial sector sent shares in most European lenders lower last week. I know we've got Chris Skinner waiting in the wings, but just very briefly, I think this is... And good morning to you, by the good way. Morning. Did you have a lovely weekend? Yeah, I did, thank you. Yes, Super you duper. Yeah, busy, busy. And the weather was despicable, wasn't it? I mean, <laughs> horrendous. Anyway, look, the, 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 the banking sector got a drubbing last week. But mm. at, having said that, there were some real outliers. I mean, Unicredit, for instance, you know, a, a terrific performance of the upset. Santander, we think, by and large, the number's looking pretty solid. But actually, if any sector is a metaphor for our concerns about the broader economy, then surely it is the banking sector, which also has the additional role of being the transmission mechanism from uh, policy to the consumer, to the customer, to uh, the corporates as well. And I think this sector sums up a lot about the market at the moment. There is a lack of confidence about the banking sector. It is trading well below its price to book. And we know that in Europe especially, but also in the United States now, just just becoming a a little bit more uh, under pressure as we get the consumer concerns uh, continuing to rise as well. We don't know what's going on the consumer, but by and large, 
it, it, it's, a, it, it's very difficult to gauge because of what we saw, uh, for instance, in the GDP figures last mm. night out of the United States. And then when we get to a company like HSBC, we also add in the global context yeah. as well, the China context as well. So it is definitely a melting pot for all of those concerns that we have about bond markets, about equity markets, about consumers, about state action, central bank policy, and as I say, China as well. I just wanted to zero in on the, the UK banks, I think, because yes. that's where the bears focused last week, right? And take your point there, Unicredit and there are other European banks that had done quite well in the mix. But the market was very much cautious, I think, around these names. It was coming into the earnings. They were also cautious and perhaps actually rightly placed for once because there was a, a lot of pain around the margin story. I think we had, had an expectation that it's still perhaps a sweet spot, given the increases we'd seen by the central bank, that the NIMS should really be reflecting that. And then, of course, when it comes to the impairments, we haven't really ramped up too much on those uh, non-performing loans. But if you looked at the margin erosion, it was already there. And on the, the numbers today, it's a slim amount, but it's just the, the state of play of where we are in this journey now. And you saw it in HSBC's numbers in terms of the net interest margin, 1.7%, squeezed two basis points on the prior quarter. So already they are seeing the same factors catch up here. Uh, the other thing that was really fascinating for me at this point too was that costs had started to increase too for HSBC. The market thought there would be a lid on these costs, but it was different factors around technology uh, and operating spending. We know the tech journey digitization is huge for a lot of the banks. That was one of the reasons, but also staff bonuses perhaps uh, into the fourth quarter. So elements here where you're still seeing costs escalate when it might be the time when the profitability is now being challenged around this NIM story. So I think about slicing back on costs. And, and even if the costs weren't going up in absolute terms, the problem is you have a lot of very expensive bankers who you don't want to get rid of in case there is a, down, a, a turnaround and there is some more M&A activity. So you have to keep them on the books. And as such, even at constant levels, your cost income ratio goes through the roof. Uh, Chris Skinner is CEO of Financer and joins us now. Chris, um, you, you've specifically focused at the, on your top bullet points, and we thank you for your notes, sir, about the U.S. banks as well. And you make the absolutely key point as well that actually, by and large, they've had a stellar earnings season over at City Wells uh, and Chase and others as well. And yet the shares are down a bit. What are the specific concerns that you're seeing to coming to the fore in that sector in the States? Having dealt with many of these banks since before some of your viewers were born, the issue is that a lot of their systems were implemented before your viewers were born. And so what we're seeing is the profits being made from rising interest rates, uh, particularly on loans, credit, um, but at the same time, huge challenges about how to restructure these companies to be digital and also recognizing the huge competition that's risen from the fintech marketplace. I saw a fantastic figure from 2021 uh, analysis that showed that the fintech community, which is these new technology unicorns and startups, now represents um, almost 40% of the valuation of total financial markets capitalization compared to the banks when they were just 3% in 2010. So we're seeing a massively changing marketplace. And as a result of that, the valuations of banks are going down. And their price to book ratio, as you mentioned, is the worst of all industries. Chris, there's a lot in there as well, not least the fact that I know you're not talking about me uh, when you're saying before I was born because I'm the same vintage as you. But I'll park that one. Uh, but, but in terms of these fintech companies uh, and these um, technology companies coming up to be a larger part of the market, it's very important to drill down on this because as far as I can see, the major banks still have a dominant position in the customer facing activity uh, in many jurisdictions. Are we talking about what's under the hood in the financial sector? What's actually going on with the payment systems, for instance? 
Well, there's a huge number of things. And every part of banking is being focused upon by specialists that can do banking better. And I was just looking at some numbers this morning. So, you know, there's over 200 uh, unicorns that are new companies since 2000 worth over a billion dollars that are drilling down into changing banking. Stripe is one of the ones that we know really well because they're payments, but it's in every aspect from wealth management, private banking through to consumer banking, commercial loans. Um, every aspect has a specialist company that can do this better, particularly with te technology and making it simpler and easier. And that's where I specialize in that specific space. So I think the challenge for most financial institutions is that the executive leadership is firmly embedded in um, traditional financial structures. They don't understand these technology systems as well as others. Uh, open banking has made it completely open through regulators to attack. And um, there's a report from McKinsey just the other day showing that most banks are losing one or two percent of their value rates uh, every year um, because of this. Chris, to what extent does the fintech challenge also now starting to erode the margin story? Because this is a feature we're just talking about, the fact you're going into a cycle where still rates have not been cut by central banks, yet the NIMS erosion story has begun. Just walk us through uh, the competition here and how various jurisdictions are playing out from the United States to, to Europe at this stage. Well, it's interesting looking at the HSBC results. I mean, they handled 26 IPOs during the last uh, uh, year, I think. and um they've only actually generated 7.7 .7 billion dollars through those ipos but zero increase in their debt and underwriting fees and this is because um it's easier to estimate uh loans through software servers and algorithms than it is through people and buildings and humans and this is the point i regularly come back to which is that if you have a specialist company that can do underwriting through an algorithm, then obviously you're going to be far more effective than any organization that still depends on moving paper around the company or emails around the company. Um, it just doesn't work like that way anymore. And unfortunately, an awful lot of the traditional financial institutions haven't got the uh, setup to deal with this in the same way that a specialist startup has. And that's the reason why the specialist startups have so much opportunity in this over 200 unicorns out there doing this. It's tough at times, though, for those specialist uh, startups, the fintech companies that have lost enormous valuation, enormous, enorm enormous amounts, I should say, around valuations, given we've had a reset. How do those companies now look as we talk about uh, a cycle where the consumer could be more challenged, some of the businesses have been lent to start to have non-performing loans? How do the fintech companies stack up in that uh, scenario? Yeah, that's a good question, Karen. I, you know, for the last... 18 months to two years i've called talked about a fintech bloodbath and a crypto winter we've been through a very hard time in the you know visionary sector that everyone talks about as being the future um and banks are obviously doing much better because we've got rising interest rates and therefore the banks comeback um is here which is what we're seeing in their profits but you know when you look at the long term you know if we go back 24 years ago to the internet boom and bust, then there was a great headline on one major US publication saying, can Amazon survive? And where we are today, obviously, we all know that they're the biggest retailer in the world and a cloud services provider. Um, so if I look 20 years, 25 years ahead, uh, I can see an awful lot of companies that are doing amazing things. And yes, 
there is a big shake out. There will be companies that lose their valuations, their unicorn status. Um, but I, I'll just take one example, which is a friend of mine because I know them well, Monzo in the UK, a digital challenger bank. You know, over 8 million customers today um, that are digital first. And what they're doing is completely different to traditional banks because they started from a digital structure at their core and therefore they're built specifically for this mobile digital online age which the banks were not they were implementing their systems 200 years ago in some cases or processes rather their systems 60 years ago that cemented those processes and this is a reflection of what i think the investors and the valuations are showing which is that you know if you cannot change a bank quickly enough then you're not going to compete hsbc is a good example you know, the costs are rising because they've had to completely restructure their digital foundations, their systems foundations. And also they're trying to refocus towards China in particular. And those two challenges, I think, for HSBC are massive. Chris, we're going to leave it there. Um, and I, we can have another ding dong about this. In fact, I want to have a ding dong with you on another occasion. So it's best done when you're back around the desk as well, not in Poland as well on a Zoom. So lovely to see you, my friend. Uh, and we'll, we'll carry on this conversation because... As much as I think the banks are in a big pickle at the moment, I think there are some stunning opportunities that from, from very much the opposite side of the exactly points you were making. But we can do that on another occasion. We'll leave that tantalising for our viewers. Thanks, Chris. Much appreciated. Uh, and as if to say how useless some of the analysis, Karen, has been on the banks as well. I note this morning that HSBC, a bank that we talked about uh, last week under a lot of pressure, um, they've just had their price target cut from 370 pence to 170. I know well, you love these. Thank up. you very much indeed to those analysts who are very much uh, behind the curve. Yeah, uh, Karen, over to you. I know you love those after the fact uh, price I adjustments. I just don't understand how someone can get paid six figures plus for getting it just so badly wrong on such a small change in the outlook. And let's push on to the markets and what we have for the Friday session. More downbeat action as a result in correction territory for the S&P 500. Uh, the slippage 10% from its summer peaks. Uh, down in session, another modest half of a percent. But it is uh, the journey that we're seeing here that investors are watching closely. The monthly view now down close to 4%. The third negative month in a row is what we're witnessing. So a change in fortunes. In contrast to the Nasdaq that we're still purchasing time don't forget it was a, a stronger it was a, a week actually where we had a lot of earnings to try and get through so challenging in terms of the market trying to just uh, lean against that narrative around the earnings for the week we we're still down 2.6 percent so the stronger showing in session in contrast to the weekly performance and the monthly performance where we're down 4.3 percent just take a look under the hood at that S&P 500 story for the 12 month view and if you keep in mind now where some of the selling is taking place uh, over the course of last week it was energy names that was a concentration of selling and so the term we're seeing again here but over the course of the year we're still positive as you can see but it's the three-month story now we've come off that peak and we're in correction territory to treasuries it is a huge week we've got a lot on the tape this week non-farm payrolls again the market's looking at the data very closely the other big point is around issuance and we know there's been a concern at the long end of the curve around this 10-year around the supply coming into the market now treasury will be announcing its refunding plans uh natwest markets has put some numbers out there 885 billion of marketable borrowing in the fourth quarter likely 700 billion in the following quarter let's see whether that long end moves as a result to the asian markets as we wade through the session you can see it's downbeat to picking up from some of that red in the united states from the friday 
Friday trade. We're down 1% on Japanese stocks, a modest dip on Hong Kong, slightly higher for the Chinese market, uh, eking out a gain of five points and eight tenths down for the Australian market with the rest in the red at this stage. The opening calls, this is how we're taking a look at the market here in Europe. I've got to say it really was challenging trading around that Thursday and Friday session as the, the market looked at a lot of the earnings and you had fairly large swings in single stock exposures. So we are looking a little bit tainted around the German and French markets this morning, chasing a little bit of green elsewhere, but it was a retreat over the course of the trading week, about 1% down for the benchmark in Europe, Steve. Hey, hey, let's do this. I know that I'm going to upset David, who's done a beautiful run. Long end, long end, long end, short end, medium end, every end. When the mm. issuance and all the other factors building up, and you know how I've been drumming on about supply to our guests and to our poor viewers have to listen to me every day. Thank you very much indeed for doing that. Um, about issuance. It's going to be every end because they're going to have to raise money from six months to a year to two year to five year to 10 year to 30 year. Uh, and it's going to be across the board. The issuance is terrifying as far as I can see. I saw a post at the weekend, uh, Jim Bianco, uh, not my copy, his work. Uh, and he was talking about um, the Barons, I think it was Barons, a copy like you know, time to buy bonds kind of thing. Well, I mean, everyone's been buying into bonds for a very long time. We'll come to that in a few moments' time. But, but the fact of the matter is, you're buying the dip thinking that's it as well because we've got these big fat yields now. Just take a look at the issuance, everybody. It's tariff. Karen made the point. She'll do this with you on Wednesday. I won't be here. I'll be watching though. There, uh, there is a view that that 10 years, so if you think about all the factors that should have moved the 10 years. It's just a benchmark, year, isn't it? It's years. a metaphor. It's like, oh, it's, just it's, a it's like the VIX. It it's the just the bench, bench. But it is the benchmark of which other assets are priced. And the fact you've had such volatility around the 10 year yeah. has made it difficult elsewhere, right? Yeah. So the near 5% mark we've traded in and around on any other given day in the past week. I think the market's gone, well, that is unusual. You've had so much risk out there around the geopolitics. Had some weaker data that crossed. You should have had a little bit of a drift in that tenure. It didn't happen. So that is the, is this time different question that's coming to the market around the supply, finding that wake-up call, look, the debts are huge. They've got to be refinanced. Does that yield stay higher for longer as a result? I don't disagree with anything you've said. But what I will add to it is that, do you know why this time's different? because we had this stunning experiment. It was called financing everything at zero. And then what we also did, because we weren't sure whether it would stay financing zero, we bought a lot of treasury bonds. Well, I say we, I'm talking about the governments. So they bought treasuries, all the central banks bought vast amounts of treasuries. It's called QE and it was a big experiment. But now obviously um, they're, they're trying to unwind. And we spent so much time thinking about what the Fed is saying about interest rates and Jay Powell said, oh, can we pause, what have you? When really what we should be looking at as well uh, is the fact that the tightening means that huge buyer of treasuries is not a buyer. In fact, they're actually releasing stock out into the market. You know, they're not reinvesting as well. And suddenly this huge buyer. So that's why this time it's different. Yeah, I, the, the I really think it is different. The Fed mantra has been ripped up in shreds, right? Yeah. Yeah. Look, um, we've already lost one read. Sorry, David. Uh, we're preparing for another bit. Sorry, David. Uh, we are, he's the producer's day, by the way. Not a voice in my head. In fact, he's both. Uh, we are preparing for another big week uh, of data. Have a look at this. Oh, nice boards graphics team. Today and tomorrow, we'll bring you the first inflation readings across the Eurozone. Flash growth data from Germany. In fact, I can tell you there is a great deal of excitement around this desk about North Rhine-Westphalia uh, and what they're putting out uh, in about 11 and a half minutes time on the CPI front. Wednesday, we'll bring the Fed's latest decision and what 
what Karen was just talking about, about that statement from the Treasury as well. I won't be in. I don't know if I mentioned that. Uh, before the Bank of England follows suit on Thursday, we'll bring you a slew of PMI data this week as well with private sector data out of China. Really key that is, isn't it? As well as readings across the Eurozone and then another key jobs report due stateside on Friday. I'm not going to let you get away without saying about the jolts. How dare they not put the jolts in there? They know I'm obsessed by it. That's coming out as well. Karen, what else is going on? It's a big week still on the earnings front. We've got about 30% of the S&P 500 reporting stateside, including Apple, the chip giants AMD and Qualcomm, and the big pharma names Eli Lilly and Pfizer. Here in Europe, we've already heard from banking giant HSBC this morning. And Sokgen battled UK lender Metro Bank posting results later this week. It's also uh, fairly huge on the tape for the continent's energy giants, with BP and Shell due out tomorrow in the pharma space, we're going to hear from GSK. And of course, the, the big weight drug uh, business, Nova Nordisk, while investors will be watching reports from the auto giant BMW and Stellantis. Coming up on the show, we're going to bring you the latest on the developing situation in the Middle East as Israel steps up ground attacks on Gaza. Plus, G7 countries are set to agree a mutual code of conduct for companies developing artificial intelligence. We'll break down what that means later this hour. And we've got more corporate earnings on deck today. We'll get the latest numbers from Clarion's as well as Erster Group. And we'll be joined by the Erster Group CFO at 7.45 CET. There's a first on CNBC. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. Israeli forces are continuing to launch airstrikes on the northern part of Gaza while troops supported by tanks advance into the territory in the so-called second phase of its war with Hamas. The health ministry in Gaza said the death toll is now uh, over 8,000 in the enclave, including more than 3,000 children. NBC's Richard Engel filed this report from the Israel-Gaza border. Israel is intensifying its offensive to destroy Hamas and remove it from power in Gaza. From just outside Gaza, we could see the massive explosions from Israeli airstrikes. Israel says it's using weapons powerful enough to collapse Hamas tunnels. We saw deep, penetrating bombs. Watch how much earth this one throws in the air. In the daylight, we could see the ruined skyline of northern Gaza. Israel is raising parts of Gaza to the ground, and more tanks and armored vehicles are moving in, along with armored bulldozers needed to clear paths in the destruction. We could also see what we can usually only hear, the constant presence of Israeli drones. Internet services knocked offline by Israel Friday have been partially restored by the Palestinian telecom company, so our crew could show us life inside Gaza City. It's becoming a wasteland. The humming you hear are those drones. Gazans call them mosquitoes. 
Israel says the operation is payback for Hamas's killing 1,400 Israelis and taking, by the latest count, 230 hostages. Gazans are getting desperate. The UN said its warehouses were broken into, people taking food and basic necessities. The staff at the Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City say the Israeli military is threatening to bomb it. Israel accuses Hamas of using hospitals as military headquarters, contrary to international laws of war. The Palestinian Red Crescent, an independent aid agency, shared with us this video tonight and says there are 12,000 people inside the Al-Quds Hospital. Israel says Hamas uses them as human shields. The Red Crescent says it must stay open to continue providing services for hundreds of thousands of people in northern Gaza. The Israeli military today laid out its three military objectives, to disarm Hamas, to destroy them politically, and free the hostages, and say the campaign could take years or end tonight if Hamas drops its weapons and releases the hostages. There's no sign of that coming. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.